Hello, and welcome to the Lotox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 120. I have decided to do two shows this week because it is Christmas Eve on Monday uh, and we're not doing a show on New Year's Eve the following Monday. So this was a conversation that I absolutely loved having. I think it's a wonderful conversation to reflect on over the silly season when we have a bit of quiet time, cup of tea, starting to think about the energy of a new year. And that is this conversation with Jonathan Fields. He is an inspiring three times author, uh, a wonderful um, change agent for people wanting to step into a life they adore. And, uh, and the Good Life Project is one of my favorite podcasts. I think Jonathan has a gift for extracting uh, information, distilling it and making it so easy, almost impossible for us not to want to act on making positive changes in our lives. Uh, A lot of the work he does is focused on inspiring business owners and entrepreneurs, but a lot of what I uh, I hear in his message is for everyone, whether you're a stay-at-home parent, whether you work part-time in a post office, I mean, everyone deserves to have parts of their lives um, that they're really clear on that light them up completely in their work life, in their personal life. Uh, and uh, and we talk about some of the strategies in uh, How to Live a Good Life, his more, most recent book. Uh, he helps uh, people start to visualize what that could look like and how to keep track of it and how to measure it. Uh, and I, I think I found my match on uh, on two fronts with Jonathan Um intellectually. And one is that he's powered by possibility and chocolate, dark chocolate to be precise. And, and I totally feel always empowered by those two things. Uh, I always feel an incredible sense of possibility, uh, in, um, in, in the fact that if, if we just act, anything is possible. That's why I started my entire business to help move the needle on people and planet. And then, of course, dark chocolate needs no explanation as I sit here with, hold on, let me just tell you the name of the chocolate I'm eating today. It is 85% Togo organic fair trade chocolate, and it is the best. Oh, my gosh, it's so delicious. Uh, and uh, and the other way that we, um, we're a bit of a, I, I was a bit of a sort of attracted to kind of hearing about his journey and how, and why he moved through so many different things was how many different incarnations of his career he's had. As you guys know, I've been uh, everything from a musician to uh, someone who worked in luxury cosmetics to a bartender who used to win cocktail competitions and get flown around the world to a hospitality consultant and then kind of now to an advocate slash activist slash educator in power on all things low tox and coming up with that phrase and, and growing community around that. And by the way, I'm absolutely not thinking of moving on from this one. Uh, this is definitely a calling. Um, but you know, if, if, as you sort of hear from Jonathan, like, how does someone who decides to start to, to trains as a professional gymnast move into studying law, then opening a yoga studio, then becoming a personal trainer? Like there are so many twists and turns to how he got to where he is today. And I think it's always fascinating to hear and it's always liberating to see, hopefully for people out there who maybe feel a bit career stuck and a bit unsatisfied, 
you can take a twist and a turn and, uh, and, and find fulfillment in the work you do. But as I said, by no means is today a conversation purely based on work. It really is about how to live a good life, how to learn from such an inspiring, interesting man about how he has cultivated that for himself. And I love how he shares that he's absolutely not perfect either. Uh, and I, I challenge him to give us an example of something that he wasn't impressed with that he didn't do in the last 24 hours of his day and he shared. So, you know, some really, really cool moments in this conversation and I, I hope by the end you'll understand why I really wanted to bring this forward before the new year, before um, Christmas for anyone who celebrates it out there and um, uh, other festivities that are going on. I mean, there's so much to celebrate the energy of a, the end of a year, right? Uh, and I think it's just a really great time for this one. So I hope you guys love it as much as I do. I want to wish everybody who's celebrating Christmas a wonderful Christmas. And if you're not celebrating the end of the year uh, in whatever way that looks for you guys. It has been an absolute pleasure putting on this show for you this year. I cannot believe we're up to 850,000 downloads. Uh, So thank you to you for sharing this podcast. Uh, You know, if you want to give me a present, you know what I would love? I would love for you to have a think about one of the shows that has personally impacted you in a profound way over the past 12 months and share it with a friend. That's it. Doesn't need to be on social media. Doesn't need to be broadcasted on Facebook to all your friends or Instagram, but literally just forward that one thing to a friend via email or text uh, and say, you know, I reckon you'd really like this one. That would be an amazing gift for me because I think some of these conversations have an incredible uh, opportunity, an incredible possibility if they can come across the right desk at the right time for the right person on the right topic. And only you can know that of your friends so well. So you give me that for Christmas and I will be one very happy bunny. But the gift you give me for turning up every week and allowing me to do this work for you guys is gift enough, I have to say. It is an absolute joy to turn up every Monday for you guys with one of these conversations. And over January, we're going to be taking a little, little break, but you will still see a podcast being published each Monday of January. What that podcast will be will be a little mashup of a couple of key moments in a in two podcasts or three podcasts at a time, just uh, where we kind of share, I share some really profound highlights over the year, the last couple of years, well, two and a half years of podcasting um, on some topics uh, to kind of relive some of the best moments, some of the biggest ahas that you've shared with me that you've had over the, the past two and a half years. And we're calling it a bit of a summer series. And I got this idea from my friend Brooke over on the Slow Home podcast, one of my favorite podcasts. And, uh, and I just love how she gives herself permission to refuel over that, that time and get back in touch with her creativity and the vision for what she wants to bring for the next year. And I have decided to do the same thing, but I'm by no means leaving you without anything in your ears each Monday. And so we're doing a summer series on some of the biggest chunks of some of my favorite and your favorite shows uh, to help us inspire further. um, And especially to kind of uh, give some of the newer people to the show 
uh, some of the very best moments that uh, we've experienced so far. So I hope you enjoy the summer series. And of course, I hope you enjoy this show and conversation with the wonderful Jonathan Fields. Hey, Jonathan, how are you? I'm doing great. How about you? I am really well, thank you. Very excited to have a chat with you. I I feel almost embarrassed at how late I've come to the party of Jonathan Fields, but <laughs> it has been a wonderful party since I got here, and uh, and I just think you bring such beautiful, uh, calm yet exciting value to the world. Uh, that's the way I kind of describe you. There's nothing rah rah ish, and you never feel pushed to do anything you're not wanting to or ready to do. But it's like this beautiful sense of opening up and empowering. And just moving forward with the things that light you up. And uh, it's certainly something I hope to do in the work that I do. Uh, and so it's really uh, it's really wonderful to be inspired by what you're doing. Uh, and I'm really excited to have you here today. Oh, thank you so much for saying that. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to uh, – what, what, what is the expression? Sorry, I've got a French mum and my expressions, <laughs> therefore, have meant that I always get it wrong. And I was literally just about to say I'm not trying to blow smoke up a tree, but I don't think that's what the expression is. And then, then I realised I think the real expression is really rude, so I'm not even going to say it. <laughs> Well, as, as, as a New Yorker, I, I know, yes, I do know what the real expression is. And, um, at least in our sensibility, it's just regular English. Okay, cool. <laughs> but I'll be sensitive to your audience. That's completely fine. No, I, I, I broke some, um, some pretty hilarious truth bombs on the book tour recently that I was on and, um, and they went with it and we had a good laugh about all sorts of things. So it's all good. Um, okay. I have so much I want to ask you, but I would love, just for the people who may have been under a rock and aren't familiar with your work yet, let's get to know Jonathan. And I'm going to start by saying you love trees. How did that come to be? How are trees one of your great loves? Uh, you know, and I'll even broaden that out into I love nature in general. It's mm-hmm. sort of a, it's the place that I go um, to just breathe, just you know, center and ground and. Um, I, I, I can't tell you a moment. I can't tell you a why. All I can tell you is that it has been a part of my well-being DNA um, physiologically and psychologically for as long as I can remember. I was always out playing in nature, playing in the woods, playing in trees um, and on the water. So I grew up actually, you know, if I went down one block, I was in woods. And if I went down another block, I was on the bay. So those have been sort of my two happy places. And for me, trees are just, you know, they're, they're the sort of these beautiful, uh, grand old anchors, um, that remind you, um, both how, how powerful and immersive nature is. And also, um, how, how impermanent we are in the context of the bigger, you know, the bigger planet. Um, I remember the first time I was out in Muir Woods in Northern California, where you see these redwoods that are, you know, have been there for what feels like a bazillion years. Mm. And they're, you know, they're, they are many times your height and diameter and you just look at them and realize, wow, you know, I am, I exist on this planet for a moment in the context of its greater history and it goes really fast. So be intentional about it. So true. So true. And uh, another thing I want to ask you uh, about is uh, the fact that you're powered by two things that I'm powered by, possibility and chocolate, dark mm, chocolate yep. to be specific. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I am, I'm happy with any kind of chocolate, but, <laughs> but, 
but dark chocolate is uh, is definitely one of my uh, one of my muses. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because if you think about what dark chocolate is, it's calming all the while with the magnesium, and it's in like it it's spark making with the the cocoa in it. So yeah. it kind of is a bit of a parallel for your vibe, I think. Yeah, completely. And then you've got the um, uh, you know sort of crazy health benefits of it too, oh yeah. Which... yeah i mean that's why i'm having chocolate every day <laughs> right i mean i consider it medicinal it's like i'd rather take that than some prescription medicine so exactly. you know like i i suffer through it and and i'm somehow i'm okay selfless totally selfless i do my part yeah you do um and so something that really interested me about you as well, and I got all excited when I first learned about your work, was that I think you've taken as many career twists and turns as I mm-hmm. have. Um, and that always interests me about the type of person and the type of things that motivate aren't necessarily uh, industry-based, you know, what I mean by that subject-based, but it's much bigger than all of the things that you kind of plot out in a graph that you've aka done in life and so you started out as a lawyer and I've heard you called yourself a reformed lawyer a few times mm-hmm. talk to me about how you ended up in law school I'm still trying to figure that one out myself <laughs> to be honest <laughs> I know yeah. I'm, I'm perplexed um, so have you, you know, got any I was, ideas? Th- there have been a couple of through lines in my life one of them I'm a maker I I wake up and I just see possibility and I want to make stuff, whether it's a company, a book, a brand, an experience, whatever it may be. And for the better part of my life, that's also involved um, companies, entrepreneurship. And the other part that's been a really consistent through through line is well-being, really understanding the sort of somatic mind-body connection. And so I found a lot of, a lot of my time has been spent pursuing those so I got to a point after college where I had to make a choice between going to school to get a degree in physical therapy or a degree in law. And mm. why I got a degree in law is <laughs> sort of an ongoing question with most of my friends, pretty much everyone who's known me for my entire life. But I think a lot of what it came down to for me was I looked at the course, I looked at the study of law and I said, this sounds fascinating. You know, the the training will prepare me to um, think intelligently, to understand and deconstruct arguments, and to speak and write um, in hopefully a more articulate, compelling way. And whether I end up actually practicing law after that or not, I was not super connected to. Um, I ended up being very fortunate and and doing well in school and then entering the profession. Um, But it wasn't a profession that I felt called to stay in after a you know a certain amount of time. Mm. And you've dealt with chronic illness in your life. Talk to me about that and how it sort of framed the end of your time in law. Yeah, I mean there was um, there was a moment that was sort of a moment of a, a wake up call for me in the law, where um, I had started in my uh, second part of the career in a. In a new company, it was a huge, super prestigious law firm. You, you know, tons of power, tons of money, like, and like suits. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and you know, like suits, um, you were also expected as a sort of somebody who is younger in the pecking order to essentially give up your life in mm. the name of doing what you're paid ridiculous amounts of money to do, and to do it perfectly, um, and to essentially live there. And I was going along that, and I was actually on a deal where I barely ever came home. 
and sort of towards the end of that window, my recollection is about two and a half weeks, there was a, a really brutal pain that started to emerge from the center of my body. And like a, a good young associate on deadline, um, I ignored it. And it got worse and worse over the next few days until I could barely breathe, I could barely stand. We did the deal, we hit the button, we met our deadline. I went home, things get really fuzzy. Um, my recollection is I kind of passed out for a couple of hours, woke up, the pain was excruciating. I took a cab to my um, physician. He looked at me, did a quick exam, turned white, rushed me around to a series of specialists and within a matter of hours I was checked into the hospital and in emergency surgery because what seems to happen is essentially from the relentless hours, the complete abandonment of self-care, the crazy stress, my immune system more or less just stopped doing what it needed to do. A huge uh, infection brewed in the middle of my body turned into a giant abscess that ate a hole through my intestines from the outside in. Oh, that sounds and delightful. Yeah, that was um, a bit of a wake-up call. So wow. thankfully, the surgery went well. I was okay, but you know, I came back after that, and and I kind of knew mm. that I was on my way out. And it was a combination of I had given up so much of the life and the things in life that I really enjoyed doing, including taking care of myself. Um, and at the same time, I I was genuinely uninterested in the carrot that was being dangled in front of me. I didn't want to ever become a partner and live that life. Mm. So, you know, that was, it took me another, the better part of a year to prepare to sort of really, really move out of that profession um, and to, to save up a whole bunch of money because I knew that the next move was going to be a, a big hit to, you know, potentially my ego and my bank account. Mm. Um, but I, But I knew at that moment, you know, I was making lists of what I thought the next step would be. Interesting. And I know we're going to talk about this a little bit later, um, the, the idea of buckets that you have in your book. Um, but do you feel like the building of what you started to want to help people clarify and uh, lead more fulfilling, more, um, more bucketful kind of lives uh, was some, uh, due to some of the retrospective work you've done on how you how you worked through these challenges in your own life? Yeah, uh, no doubt they're informed by mm. my own experiences in pretty substantial ways. You know, but it's interesting. I've recently tried to see if I could trace my deep interest in sort of exploring and optimizing human potential um, back back as far as I could trace it. And from what I recall, it really I think the the early seeds really happened for me in college. I was fascinated by human behavior. Um, why I didn't actually get a degree in psychology, I'm not entirely sure. Me um, too. How bizarre. But, uh, yeah. could, it, it could have to do with the fact that my father um, was uh, an experimental psychologist uh, okay. and clinical. <laughs> That's enough and to it's, put you it's, off. Right. It's, it's yeah. the old, you know, angsty teen. I'm not doing what my parents do. Mm, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. but, uh, but in hindsight, you know, I, I have always had a very deep fascination with why we do things um, and why we don't do things that we know are good for us. And that certainly is focused as much on myself as on other people because there are plenty of times where I know the right move and don't take it also. You know? mm. So oh, I'm always absolutely. trying to deconstruct my own brain. <laughs> 
me too. And I think for me, like, you know, obviously all the work that I do centers around helping people live their best lives health-wise for people on planet as well. So, you know, if we don't have a planet, we kind of don't have any other reason um, to exist. And, uh, and the thing that fascinates me is the change journey of waking up to what's in our products, what's in our food, our food system, yada, yada. Not only how it's impacting us, our health, but also the planet and how we actually make it so much bigger picture that we actually make it stick because we actually finally start to join the dots to the bigger picture. And I think the joining the dots is to like how we relate to all this and build power around the decisions we make in day-to-day life is a really fascinating thing that I feel like when you help individuals tap into that, you then like it then becomes a self-motivating exercise instead of needing to find motivation externally. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I think um, to me, there is, I think we focus on motivation way too much. Mm, um, mm. If you have, I don't know if you're familiar at all with the work of BJ Fogg, who's a professor at Stanford and um, ran the uh, sort of human persuasion or the, the tech persuasion lab. Um, oh, yeah, but he yeah, developed, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he's, he's developed um, what he calls the, the Fogg behavioral model where he says every behavior is a factor of um, three things, motivation, ability, and some trigger. And so we need the ability to actually take the action that we know we you know is is intended to take. We need the motivation to take it, and we need some trigger. And what most people do is focus on increasing motivation. Say like, I'm going to give you a ton of motivation, so that you'll go take that action. You'll walk around the block. You'll you know like choose something that's you'll choose a vegetable instead of a bag of chips. Um, and what his research has shown is that it's the absolute wrong thing to do. You know, mm. like the thing to focus on is actually to make the better choice, um, to, to focus on the ability side of the equation mm-hmm. and make the better choice so ridiculously easy that it's almost unconscionable not to take it. Mm. Um, and then build structure around that. So it's, yeah, I mean, and, and it's fascinating just sort of seeing the, the different way that researchers are exploring that. Mm. But I do agree that you're, you know, environment um, is massively important in understanding why we do what we do and in the process of change. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Cool. Um, Yeah, that really rings true for me if I think back to why I finally quit smoking. Um, And, you know, I think I smoked throughout most of my 20s and uh, I had this pie in the sky date that I was going to quit smoking on May the 1st, 2005, and it was like ages away. So it made me feel quite comfortable. Then it started looming And so I had a practice quit and it just didn't work. And, uh, you know, then did the hypnotherapy that didn't work. And then I started seeing a naturopath who helped me with a couple of other things at a really important time in my life. And, um, she was, I don't know whether it was her wonderful German straight upness, um, with research and like, but she did exactly what you just described. She made it inconscionable to keep smoking. Like there was absolutely nothing in my mind that could justify it any longer. And it was that that meant I quit successfully for once and for all. So, yeah, I agree. It had nothing to do with motivation because, of course, I knew quitting smoking was the right thing to do. And I wanted to, but it was really that that creation of the unconscionable to keep smoking idea. Yeah. And I mean, if you also just, you know, if you really understand how your environment either supports or destroys your ability to engage in a particular behavior, that's such a huge part of it too. Massive. Um, 
Yeah. Massive. Well, Brene Brown talks about how the single most difficult thing for a human to do is to do something differently to the, what their tribe is doing around them. So you can understand why people fall back so easily and don't move forward with the things that are in their heart, even though they want to do them sometimes. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, um, yeah, I'm always, I remember first being exposed to uh, research that was done on U.S. soldiers um, who were, I think, I believe it was in the Vietnam War. And um, there was a huge addiction problem within the military to opioids, to mm -hmm. um, opium there. Um, something like, I want to say, 10 or 15% of people um, were addicted. Oh, wow. And according to sort of common addiction theory, well, when they came home, they should have stayed addicted. And what happened was that pretty much none of them were addicted once they came home. And the reason was because when they were deployed, um, there was, you know, the environment basically supported use and it was everywhere and it was easy to get and so many people were doing it. But when they came back to their towns in the U.S., and this was also, this was, you know, a number of generations ago where things aren't the way they are now. Yeah. Um, it, nobody was doing this. It was brutally hard for them to continue. They would have had to, you know, really go extremely outside of their normal day-to-day -day environment activity. So they just stopped. Once they got over the physiological addiction, which actually is out of your system in a couple of days, mm -hmm. um, it was pretty much done. And it was, I was blown away by how strong um, an impact environment has on even behaviors as strong as physiological addiction. Yeah, that's huge. Um, wow. Okay. So how do I segue back to asking you about how you open the <laughs> yoga studio? That's, I, I'm like usually pretty good at segues, but I, I'm struggling. It's, it's here, my addiction, <laughs> right. My addiction to opening, to starting companies. Yes. Okay. Let's go with that. Nice. Um, Sadly, I haven't heard that one yet. <laughs> uh, so you you have this realization that obviously it's like it's almost it sounds like your first massive professional aha that to to win at life in the work I do and to feel fulfilled I do not need to go to the point of nearly killing myself so let's try and figure this out again so how do you then move from there to the idea of opening up a business and why a yoga studio have you had a personal passion for yoga in your life yeah so there was actually one step in the middle but but the the, the thread was that while I was sitting madly scribbling on long legal pads in my office, I was making a list of the things that I would try and do if I thought I could support myself doing them. And it kept spiraling back to some blend of lifestyle slash movement and entrepreneurship. So my first move was actually working as a $12 an hour personal trainer mm -hmm. um, to learn the fitness industry because mm -hmm. I wanted to really understand what was happening from the most basic point of service up and then build a better mousetrap, which I did. So I ended up building um, a health club. Uh, we built that for about two and a half years and then sold it. And then I was really, I was getting fascinated with yoga. I had started to develop a practice myself. I turned to it actually more for the breathing practices, the pranayama in the beginning when I was in the tail end of being a lawyer because I would get calls from, you know, super high stakes, high profile uh, clients who, and I wasn't able to handle um, mm -hmm. confrontational, confrontational conversations or environments very well. Um, and I wanted to find some tools to be able to breathe into it. And I knew that even though I was leaving the law, I I am sort of wired to constantly step into the space of the unknown and make things happen. And that is always really uncomfortable. So pranayama was sort of my gateway into yoga. And then 
the movement part of it, I really reconnected with as well. Um, I was, I trained as a competitive gymnast for the earlier part of my life and it sort of, it connected with something in me on that level. And then I started looking around as my brain often does and said, you know, is there an interesting opportunity to create something here? And in New York City at the time, there were certainly plenty of yoga studios, but most of them didn't serve the world that I had just come out of, which was sort of a high, high, high pressure, you know, stressful, fast paced, mainstream business world. Mm. Um, in fact, they were terrified. Um, to yeah, step into well, a yoga I so studio. agree with that. Like this was what, 10, 12 years ago or something? This is even more. This was 2001, actually. Oh, 2001. Okay, yeah, yeah, definitely. Whereas now, it's almost like the trendy yeah. way for an executive right. to kind of tap into some relaxation. Right. It's like, mm. hey, instead of golf, let's go take a class and then mm. uh, <laughs> yeah. we'll talk afterwards. But back then, it was actually, um, it was pretty, uh, it, it was unusual. Um, so I saw an opportunity as I <laughs> started to. I found a space um, a couple blocks from where I lived. And um, newly married with a new home and a three-month-old baby, I signed no. a six-year six year lease for a floor in a building the day before 9-11 in New York City. Wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Timing. Like, but okay. Um, so yeah. did you- So good news, bad news. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You know, right. Yeah. As, as a longtime New Yorker, um, you know, like there were people that I lost that day as, you know, anybody who lived here for a long time knew people that were gone. I'm so sorry. And at- at the same time, um, you know, I was asking myself, am I really going to try and launch a new business into this just sea of darkness and pain? And what I realized was, you know, we have one shot. Um, and there was never a greater need for a place of community health and healing in New York City than there was at that moment. So, you know, we had to make radical changes in how we were going to do what we were doing and we just, yeah, you know, we opened our doors to pretty much anyone in the early days, whether you were showing up and paying or just coming because you just needed to move and breathe and cry. Um, and we were, you know, we were fortunate. We were, we were embraced quickly. We really served a need, and and the center grew um, really beautifully. And and I, while it was my intention um, to be more of a behind the scenes sort of business person, because when we opened, there were two people. I found myself quickly teaching yoga and then ended up um, teaching for another seven years myself, um, you know, eventually learning what I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> but any great yoga teacher will tell you, you are always learning no matter what. Yeah. 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 No, yeah. it's completely, I mean, it's funny because to this day, you know, so I sold that company, that business um, at the end of 2008. So I'm out of it for 10 years now. Mm. Um, it's still in New York. It's still thriving. There's still a beautiful community. What's it called I'll, if anyone wants to go? Oh, it's called Sonic Yoga. Mm -hmm. And um, But I'm sometimes asked, you know, do you miss teaching yoga? Do you miss being on a floor, you know, like packed with bodies moving and breathing together? And, you know, sometimes for a split second, my answer is yes, there's an incredible energy to that. But then when I really reflect, my answer is I don't feel like I ever stopped teaching yoga because what I do now is just, it's more the outer limbs of the practice, you know, mm. framed in, in, a, in a language and a construct that I think just makes it more easy, easily accessible and yeah. broadly applicable. Well, you, I mean, if you think about it, you've just got a whole bunch of bodies breathing together virtually, moving yeah. into uh, tricky stuff like the kind of the figurative warrior two pose that you kind of have to hold for 50 billion seconds. And, uh, you know, those are the tough moments of our life and you breathe through them and you come out the other side better and stronger. Yeah, exactly. So you're still teaching yoga. I agree. 
Um, now, okay, so how do we go from yoga to deciding you wanted to play this almost, uh, <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, yeah, I, I, I'm very curious to know so, what, what was the motivation for selling first? Like how did you know yeah. that chapter was closed? And then what, what, why did you choose a particular new door to open? So I knew that that chapter was closing because I was just emotionally um, less and less invested in being present. And because it was not just a business, but it was a community, you know, it was a place of belonging. Um, you know, what became really clear to me is you need a shepherd. You need somebody who is sort of in a leadership position who really genuinely is checked in and does care and is involved on a day-to-day basis. And I wasn't. I had a great management team. I had amazing staff of teachers and uh, volunteers, um, but I was largely checked out. You know, So when it got to a point where I was teaching one class a week and barely going into the studio, um, I was like, you know what? It's, <laughs> it's time. It's time to find somebody else who will you know, um, take over and become that person. Uh, and so I started that process. And at the same time, I'd also really started to develop a deeper interest in writing. And the same year that I sold the business, I had actually then also sold my first book to um, what is now, uh, I guess it's now Crown under Random House. Um, they keep changing names. But um, <laughs> So I was already, you know, by the time I, I, I exited the, the company and had already sold and started down the path of writing and eventually speaking. Um, and I wanted to write about a blend of business, entrepreneurship, lifestyle, um, and just keep exploring, but develop the craft side of what I was doing as well and be a, a bit less forward facing in a room and really, um, start to think about language. And I have, um, I'm as obsessed with information that might come through what I write or speak about as I am with the actual craft, the process, the making part of whatever it is. So, you know, I will read a sentence in a book written by somebody else and start to laugh or cry, not so much because of what they said, but because of how they put the sentence together. Mm. And no, yeah, you know, and yeah. yeah, and and as a writer, I'll know it's going to take me another 10 years to be able to do that. Um, but I'm, I'm okay with that, you know, because I'm just going to keep working on it. So for me that, you know, that change, that shift, um, kind of all happened in a relatively seamless way and launched me down the path that I've been traveling, um, really since then in sort of various iterations. Mm. And podcasting, you decided to, uh, to do that sort of a, quite a fair bit before it was a trendy thing for every man and his dog yeah. to have a podcast. Um, yeah. How, uh, how did you decide what kind of shape you wanted that podcast to take, how you wanted it to look for people? Because that really form, informs then the kinds of people you invite on. And as a fellow podcaster, I'm, I'm curious to know. Yeah, it does. So we actually started, um, you know, a new company called Good Life Project in 2012. And the first two years, we were actually filming. So we were on location with a three-camera crew. And what I realized pretty quickly was people were responding. We were building an audience quickly. Um, But what I wanted to do was have long-form, in-depth conversations with people. And there was nothing really all that visually interesting about what we were doing, yet we were you know, incurring the expense of actually filming on location with a crew. And also realized that to be able to to do it, 
um, we'd often have to shoot three, four, or five episodes in a day, mm. which is incredibly grueling. Oh, yeah. And it also wouldn't allow me the conversation that often built up on the side that people wanted to have between uh, when you were shooting. Yeah, because I was going to say, because it's away. like, stop, start, hold on, I'm going to change the light. And it's like, that's yeah. quite disruptive. Yeah, and also, um, well, I got pretty comfortable in front of cameras pretty quickly. Most people people are not, um, unless you're media trained. Um, so at the same time, I remembered as an author then having, and at that point I had two books out and I had been interviewed many times. I loved being in radio studios. There was something about having head, headphones on and a mic, you know, like two inches from your face and kind having, of like we like, have right now. Yeah. Exactly. You know, um, I just, I love that. There was something about it. But then the tipping point for me was actually a single conversation. So I was introduced to a woman who was one of the founders of one of the really big public radio franchises in the U.S. And I was walking around actually the um, museum of uh, Metropolitan Museum in New York City with her. And, and I was saying to her at the time, you know, I was really curious about public radio. And she kind of tipped her head, like, um, and she and she said, "Well, well why?" Uh, and I said, "Because of the reach." I said, "It's huge. Terrestrial radio is getting smaller, but but public radio is expanding." Um, and she looked at me like I didn't really understand. I said, "What am I missing?" And she said, "The power of this medium is that it it is the most intimate medium of anything, but um, you've really got to produce for audio, um, you know, specifically if you're going to leverage that." And I got it. And I think the original intent of then moving from producing video to audio was to create a show, was to essentially make proof of concept so they could go out to public radio here mm -hmm. and see if they would, you know, we could, we could interest the station managers in picking up the show. And that all changed a couple of months into it because Serial came out. Ah, <laughs> and, yes. Okay. And, you know, we, we were, I, I had sort of committed fully uh, to the podcasting a couple of months before that. So we're getting early traction because a lot of our video uh, watchers, viewers followed us over. Then when Serial came out, the entire ecosystem of podcasting just exploded. And we've been, you know, sort of fortunate to ride a lot of that wave, change a lot of the way we produce, and, you know, really raise the game in sort of like how we produce um so, so what what I try and do is is you know create a show that would be at the standards of um, professionally produced public radio, and but what I found is that you know the the I don't feel the need to have to sort of go out and do the whole selling process um, to go through the gatekeepers anymore because um, in our space you know everything is different and it's growing and changing so fast and it's actually so exciting to see and be a part of so much change. I mean, I'm curious what your experience has been with that. Mm. Uh, it, it has been interesting. And I think uh, it, it's funny when you do something because you are drawn to the possibility that it brings. And that's pretty much one of the <laughs> main reasons I do anything is that drawn to that amazing possibility, that sense of magic that's around the corner. If you decide to kind of poke around there and, and see what it might bring. And that for me was exactly what podcasting was. And interestingly, uh, I guess I, I find having conversations 
uh, brings you a level of depth to an idea that simply writing a blog post, which of course you can you can gain a huge amount of depth in a, in a long form or even writing a book, but the act of uh, bringing a conversation that two people are having and that you might be able to have that conversation in a way that makes the people listening think, I so wanted to ask that. I'm so glad you asked that. Or, you know, like literally uh, you're able to then draw um, mirrored curiosity from people out there uh, into a conversation you had. Whereas when you write something just yourself, I don't feel that that, that beautiful extra element comes. And, um, and I don't know, I think because people are talking together, it's like you're all just kind of in the kitchen together, hanging out, uh, rather than, um, you know, the seriousness of the written word by contrast. And, uh, over time, yeah, I think for me, it's been interesting in the health space as well, because I I don't see myself as a a health and wellness blogger kind of person. I, I see, uh, myself as wanting to change the world and, and bring us to better health for people, for planet and, uh, and, and wanting to at- attract very big picture thinkers to the realm of that, to inspire people to think bigger picture instead of think so granular and like me and my first world problems. And, uh, and I think podcasting helps you do that and it helps you bring big minds to inspire people to, to expand their minds uh, in a way that no other form of, of media does for me. Yeah, no, I think it's um, yes to all of those things. You know, for <laughs> me, it's been, it's funny, I have um, a friend who's been an author sort of in the personal development space for probably two decades now. And when I was first starting to write, I, I said, you know, like, what's the deal here? You know, why do you do this? And she said, you know, I she said, I'm constantly have big questions that I want to answer. Mm. And some of them take a lot of time and a lot of money to answer on the level I want to answer them. So how awesome is it that I can get somebody else to pay me to spend a couple of years answering the questions I want to answer? Yes. Um, amazing. <laughs> and I, I think to a certain extent, podcasting is, you know, a bit of a, you know, it's not the only reason I do it, but it's certainly the the access to just stunning minds and conversations yeah, that's has right. been yeah. a huge part of it for me. Yeah, massive. Uh, and, and I really, yeah, I really love what you said there about your friend. Uh, it, it is also about the fact that people think, you know, I like the way your mind thinks. So why don't you go ahead and figure that out and find that out and bring me the people to to help show us the way. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that's what you almost, ha- I feel a really huge sense of responsibility towards my audience around being entrusted oh, sure. with that, right? Yeah, completely yeah. agree. Mm. Um, so, I mean, we could basically talk about a, a bazillion things, but I really do want to get into how to live a good life because cool. <laughs> I'm kind of figuring a lot of people want to know a few answers uh, to, to how to do that. Um, and this is a brilliant book. Thank you for writing it, by the way. Oh, thank you. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I don't want to go so deep into it that people don't feel that they need to read it. Cause I think it's an incredible personal journey to take, to read the book. Um, but I would love to ask you a few questions around, uh, some of the practicalities and how you've organized the information. Um, and I might just start here. So like, how is it that humans know how to live a good life deep down, have countless tools, inspo quotes? We talked about motivation before. We go to the big rah-rah events, calendars, daily tips, talk shows, podcasts. Basically, everything is in our pockets to help us live a good life 
these days. Um, yet often people don't do it. And you hear a lot of people whinging and I can't do that. It's too hard. Or, Nothing's working out. Like, was it part of sort of part frustration, part curiosity, throwing your hat in the ring to, to try and unpack this in a, in a way that really helped make it easy for people because you felt like it was all out there, but it just wasn't easy enough for people to take action yet? Yeah, I mean, definitely a blend of that. And, and as always, scratching my own itch because, mm-hmm. you know, as I mentioned, um, I'm human like everybody else. And, and I'm somebody who has the good fortunate to study all the right things to do on a daily basis and earn my living learning it and sharing it. And at the same time, there are plenty of days where I wake up and I'm like, ah, that's not happening. <laughs> You know, and I'm, and there's literally like somebody in my head saying, "No, you know the right action here. Like, d- go do it." I'm like, "Eh, tomorrow." Give me an example. Um, like what? When uh, was the last time you did that? This week, sometime. Today, working uh-huh. out. Okay. Didn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and yet, go. there are other things that I do religiously. You mm-hmm. know, I have meditated pretty much every morning since um, March of 2010. Mm-hmm. So I'm always trying to figure out how do you know, like uh, how do I how do I create the structure and the ideas? How do I create um, something that that helps me do the things that I know really add to my life? And how do I understand? And how do I how do I offer ideas in a way to others where it lands? Because if you look at the canon of books and videos and films and podcasts and all these different things in the world of health, self help or personal development, there's no lack of people offering solutions. Mm. You know, and so when I looked at the possibility of writing a book in this space, I tried to figure out, well, well, so if there is such a vast sea of information out there um, and there's still more suffering than maybe ever before, what's going on, you know? And what I realized, at least this is my my lens on this, is that um, a lot of what's out there is either served up in a way which is – either highly academic, um, and I love geeking out over academic studies. I'm pouring over research on a regular basis. Mm. But then my quest is how do I deconstruct them and retell them and share what's actually in them in a way that makes it accessible to people. And then on the other side, you have almost fiercely dogmatic um, softness, spirituality, metaphysics, which again has its place, and yet most people in mainstream society look at that and that's not accessible to them either. So my idea was how do I how do I share simple validated information that's practical that I know works in a way where it goes down easy you can understand a simple model or approach you can hear it once and remember it for life and then you can use that simplicity to guide your daily behaviors where it becomes you know we're talking about you know adjusting that ability side of the behavioral model you know, you, you just find a way to make it as easy as possible so it becomes hard to justify not doing it. Mm, um, yes. And so that was really, you know, that was that was my quest for the book is can I do that? And I honestly wasn't sure if I could mm. when I started it. And, you know, the model that I share in the book, which you refer to as a good life buckets, certainly was not the first model <laughs> you know, that oh, I started thinking about. I mean, there were so many variations because the idea kept being – Simplify, simplify, simplify. You know, there are so many ways I could share a complex model and roadmap and outlines and all sorts of stuff that would be valid, and yet nobody would ever do a thing to act on it. 
Mm. So, so the idea was how do we keep distilling it down, distilling it down to and make anybody. And there's a lot of that online, hey? You know, yeah. There's a lot. Of, oh, my gosh. And, and for me, what that creates is a guru mentality. And it's yeah, like which you I don't actually <laughs> can't achieve anything unless you're following all the bazillion steps of the guru exactly as the guru says. And it's so disempowering and it means it doesn't last. And people don't get yeah. long-lasting value. And I think – you know, I think you know, I'm, I'm definitely speaking to a fellow change agent. So that means, oh, shit, I didn't make the brief. Like, I haven't succeeded. And that would be devastating, right? If you set out to help people achieve something and you don't, you don't do it. So interesting. So how many iterations before you get to the buckets? Uh, I don't even know. But mm. I mean, what I can tell you is that I actually wrote three entirely different manuscripts, um, let alone changing to the changes to the, to the model of the buckets. Um, so they're just massive, massive. And this is the only time I've ever done that. I mean, the the prior books that I'd written were pretty straightforward. And you know, we followed an outline and the manuscript was solid and we would tune it and, and we were done. This was not that process this kept changing and changing and changing until it became what it had to be to go out into the world and do the work it needed to do. Amazing. And so what, what are these buckets? Can we share? Sure. So simple model. Think of your life as three buckets. One we call vitality, and that is about the state of your mind and body. And we always talk about them as one thing because we know now, of course, and I'm sure this is something you share with your listeners all the time, that they are not separate. They're one feedback mechanism. Um, the second one is connection. That is about cultivating deep and meaningful relationships. And the third bucket is contribution. And that is about the work you do in the world. And that could be the work you get paid for, but it could also be just the nature of the way that you feel it really is your primary contribution to the world. And there we focus on meaning and purpose. And when you think about you know, what is a good life, think about a good life as being filling all three of these buckets and allowing them to become as full as possible and stay as persistently full as they can be for as long as you can. When that happens, everything just starts working. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One is they're all interconnected. So, you know, if you are really struggling with relationships, if you're not seeing close friends much, if you're out of touch with close family, if you're if you have a life partner, a romantic partner, and you're not communicating or things aren't good, the connection book it starts to drain. Um, it becomes dysfunctional and eventually becomes empty. But it's not just the connection bucket that actually underperforms because as that drains, it creates an artificial cap on your ability to fill the other buckets. And we all know this intuitively, right? Mm. So we know that if we're really struggling on an interpersonal level, um, it's it's so hard for us to go to work and show up and do our best work because emotionally and psychologically, we're just not there. We're drained. It has an effect on us. Similar thing with health. You know, If your vitality bucket is running dry, whether it's your state of mind, your mindset, or physiological illness, disease, pain, suffering, um, if that starts to run low, that will absolutely have an effect on your ability to be present in the lives of others, to be, be a good friend, be a good, a good lover, a good partner, and to do the work mm. that you're here to do on the level that you're doing it. So there's a strong interconnectedness between all of these. Um, but the basic model is simple. You know, It's the three buckets, uh, vitality, connection, and contribution. And 
the the invitation is really simple to be honest in assessing how full or empty any given bucket is on any given day because another rule of the buckets is they never lie we may like to lie to ourselves but the buckets are the buckets they always tell the truth um and to do a little something every day to fill all three of them um maybe adding an extra little something on the one that's lowest on any given day and the reason is because of the third rule of the buckets and that is that all of your buckets leak. And the further you get into life, the more they leak. There's nothing you can do about it. It's the natural process. Um, but what you can do is know this and be intentional about um, really doing what you need to do to fill each one. Mm, so beautiful. So simple. And I think it probably is exactly why it took you so long to get there. You know, that idea, Richard Branson talks about this a lot, and you distill, 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 mm. until it is impossible for you to not understand what's in front of you. Um, and uh, and I think that's what makes the buckets so, feel so relatable and achievable. And what I love as well is the parallel one can draw um, between uh, how you've so successfully shown how inter interconnected all of these buckets are to the overall health of your life um, in terms of, you know, truly thriving and how broken it is when we do disconnect them and when we are just work, 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 no joy. And, uh, or, you know, even how our medical model works, you see one person for the heart, but like if you've got a chronic illness, there's a whole bunch of things going all around your body and it just doesn't make sense to go to these people who just deal with one little bit. It's, uh, you know, it, it, we have to think holistically if we're going to truly find a sense of, um, uh, of living a good life. And, uh, and I think that's, that's my favorite part about it. Yeah. I mean, it's really, you know, what, what I kind of love on the geek side is that underneath the hood of something which seems just almost so simple, it, it would be ineffective, is actually a fair amount of um, systems thinking, design and process. Mm-hmm. Um, Agile um, modalities and and adaptive technology and stuff like that. Um, but if I talk about that, I, I love that stuff. You know, <laughs> I'll geek out on it. But everybody's eyes glaze over because they're not nerds like me. Mm. Um, so the goal is really just let's just keep it simple so it becomes usable, so it can guide decisions and actions on a daily basis. That's right. And I think when you have nerd tendencies, like I have conferences that I attend and things that really you know scratch my nerd itch. Um, but when I do a lot of public speaking and things, I like to make things really, really simple. And that's not because I'm trying to dumb things down by no means. It's because I really, really want action to be taken and things to be super clearly understood. Yeah, completely agree. Mm. Okay. So there are laws around these buckets and you kind of alluded to the idea that, you know, they leak over time and you have to pay attention to them. You have to put something in them every day. Uh, is it as simple as starting to just raise some awareness around these buckets in our lives to start our own good life project? Or can you give us some tools between now and when people actually get the book and start reading? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, here's the thing. It is that simple, but nobody wants to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> Humans because love like, overcomplicating things for themselves. Give me the yeah. app. Give me the technology. <laughs> give me the spreadsheet. Give mm-hmm. me, you know, like the, the, the to-do list or the agenda. Give me, like, give me the device, the tool. Um, let me outsource it and pay somebody else to make me do it. <laughs> um, and so, it's, like, I, I love the question because everything comes back to the fact that, yes, like, step one, 
look at the model, does it resonate with you? Right? It's like you, for most people, they can look at that and intuitively they don't say, show me the data. Intuitively, they're like, well, yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. So once your rational brain says, yes, this makes sense, I believe it, then the question becomes, okay, so what's my first step? And my philosophy is <clears throat> rather than taking big disruptive steps, which is what most people do, and it's a disaster, what's the tiniest thing that you can do? You know, what is the smallest step that you can do? So if you're if you if you want to change your nutrition because you know you're eating fast food and and you're taking terrible care of what you put into yourself, well, you know, one approach would be to go see a nutritionist and completely turn everything that you put into your body upside down and wake up the next morning, you know, go shopping, completely redo everything and then change every everything about the way that you're eating. Mm. What most research shows us is that will not work. And it's not because the nutrition doesn't work. It's because behaviorally, there's no way we'll sustain it. It's too disruptive. Our brains absolutely war against large-scale large disruption. So like the approach is really, what is the simplest first step that I can take to begin to create a new behavior and then start to build other small steps around it? So rather than big disruptive things, you know, my approach is really, what's a tiny thing that you can do? You know, so if your connection bucket is feeling low, Really simple thing. Instead of you know going to therapy and trying to figure out like how to be a better person and and you know do all this deep work, which if you want to do, do. But the easier first step, the one where somebody wakes up in the morning and says, "I can do that." Like there's literally, I can't justify not doing it. Is think about somebody who you really care about, who you have not spoken with in say a month to three months, and take out your phone. Instead of using the phone as a device of torture and distraction, the way we usually use it, actually use it as a device for connection and take out your text, you know, hit your texting app and say, hey, I was just thinking of you. You know, it's been too long. Um, I really, you know, like you're, you're an important person to me and I would love to reconnect. Are you around later for a quick chat? You know, let's, you know, or, or whatever it may be. Mm. Or even just a quick text that says, hey, I was just thinking about you. I want to know you mean a lot to me. I appreciate you in my life. I know we haven't been you know, in contact because we've both been busy, but I just want to let you know. Mm. Little things like that make a really big difference because then over time you start to step into the identity of a person who does things like that. And mm. then it starts. you start to do more and more and more and more. Yeah. And that's the way that like real sustained long-term behavior change happens. Yeah. And that connected one, I mean, it's so important today, right? We feel more connected than ever, but it's often artificially based connection. And, um, and there, there's just nothing like really feeling like you matter to someone and really letting know, someone know that you, they matter to you. Uh, there's things that fire off in your body that can't happen in online conversations. Yeah. I mean, Im imagine if you did this, this really simple challenge, right? Mm. So if you're listening, if you're listening to this, think about this. In fact, I invite you to do this for the next seven straight days. When you wake up in the morning before you get out of bed or get out of bed first, you know, whenever it is that you actually engage with your device, make the first thing you do um, to do this, this, that simple drill that we just talked about for a moment, bring to mind somebody who you care about, who you haven't really been in touch with in a little while and send them a quick text. Do that for seven days in a row. And then after seven days, see how your connection bucket feels. See if it feels different. I pretty much guarantee. 
what seems like a ridiculously small thing that will literally take you 15 seconds to do will make a meaningful difference because now you are going to be reconnected, even lightly, even for a moment, with seven people who you genuinely care about. And that will very likely lead to one or two bigger conversations, maybe an unburdening, maybe you know a sharing of events and life, and maybe support. And it's it's you know it's the it's that cascade effect that becomes really powerful. But if we think about doing all the bigger actions first, we'll just never start. Mm, so so true. Uh, and I'm already making my list of people in my head. <laughs> Uh, just coming off a book tour as well, especially. I just there's yeah, people that I'm hard. just like, <laughs> oh my god, I just need to let those people know I love them. <laughs> right, it's like I'm back. Yeah. <laughs> totally, totally. Um, okay, that that's a that is just a fantastic thing to do, and what a time of year to do it here, late December, perfect, so perfect. Um, okay, so. I want to ask you about this whole work-life balance thing because uh, often in terms of the, the beautiful buckets you have so successfully defined for us, and I really do like to try and live by these uh, and at least raise my awareness around them when things are a little awry and one got really leaky, work-life balance as a concept and the idea of, you know, you know this as a business owner, sometimes, okay, let's take a book tour, for example. You have to be go, 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 quite single-minded because of the amount of energy it takes to uh, bring your best self to audience after audience after audience after group of people after group of people after book signing after little teeny tiny conversations one after the other. And I have absolutely loved that process. But I do know that in giving myself to that for several months, other buckets might not be so full right now. Uh, is it kind of a fact of life that sometimes there is this ebb and flow where you do tip one a bit heavier than the others? And, uh, and how do you manage that in your own life? Um, and, you know, because what I definitely don't want people to feel is that they're failing if one tips heavier than the other and, and how we kind of manage this seesaw that kind of happens in life. Yeah. Um, so the phrase work-life balance gives me hives. Oh yeah, me too. Me too. <laughs> I, and I have to preface um, this by saying I'm not. Yeah. I'm not using that phrase to. Yeah, uh, yeah no, totally get it. To give it power, um, it's more to yep. d detract power from it because yeah. I think we're we've been too obsessed with it for too long. Yeah. Yeah. Totally get it. Um, a friend of mine, Mitch Joel, introduced me to the phrase. I, I want to say like six or seven years ago, the phrase "work-life blend," which I think is a much Yay, healthier sort of lens for. Yeah. Yeah. So. So work work life balance implies that you're balancing opposites against each other, which mm -hmm. means life is good, work is bad. So the the question I always ask is, what if work could be good too? Mm. <laughs> you know, what if both could be good? In fact, what if you could weave them together in a way that is both respectful of individual yearnings and simultaneously complementary, and and have the ability to compound the joy, the connection, the meaning, the purpose, the engagement. By doing that. And I think, you know, to me, you can. So when I think about work, I don't stop my work day because I'm done and I finally get to clock out because it's my eight hours are served. I stop it because there are other people and activities that I love mm. um, to engage with. But I'm nowhere near done with my work because I love my work. Even the sucky days where there's all sorts of stuff that I really am not into doing, the bigger picture is no, you know. 
I, I am I'm, I'm deeply satisfied and fulfilled with a lot of what I do. Does that come out of balance with me at times? A hundred percent. There are times where I'm really, where I'm, I'm working way, 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 way too hard. Um, and I know it's not healthy for my mind. I know it's not healthy for my body or for my relationships. But when I do that, what I try to do is, is sort of pre-plan. I do a pre-mortem on this. And I say, okay, so you mentioned launching a book. You know, if you're launching a book or a company or a podcast or an event or an experience or you've got a you know, big gathering coming up for family, whatever it may be, you look at that and before you even allocate energy to it, you kind of say to yourself, okay, so I know that to do this thing on a level that will be deeply satisfying for me it is going to take me to a place where it's going to consume way more of my working energy and effort and time than I know is healthy to sustain over a long window of time. But because I know what the window of time is, I know what the effort is going to be, I'm going to think about what the cost is going to be um, and try and plan to accommodate those costs and take care of myself and minimize them as much as possible that I'm willing to go to that place. I'm going to be intentional about it and not just react my way into a place of massive default burnout. You know, that mm. um, when, I, when I enter it that way, then I also set up what I call circuit breakers and triggers to say that if I hit that point where I thought I was going to be where I wanted to be or feel how I wanted to feel and things aren't working or I realize it's going to take you know, another six months or, or you know, 20% more work, then at that point, I need to reevaluate whether I'm still willing to sacrifice um, on this level for the thing that I said I want to accomplish, and also sort of deputize people who are in this with me, or at least on the outside, knowing what I'm here to do, to step in and intervene and call me and ask questions and say, okay, so how's this working for you? Hmm. So that you have these checks and balances. Um, but no doubt, like, I don't, to me that, you know, to think of work-life balance as, you know, there's this pendulum that swings from one side to the other, and the goal is balance to just get the pendulum to stop swinging and to stay static in the middle. Hmm. It's like all we're doing when we do that and all, all I think people do when they promote that is that they set you up for fertility, futility, and suffering hmm. because it is an unattainable goal totally for the vast agree. majority of people, hmm. nor should it be. I mean, life happens so much in the margins, you know, and if you don't allow yourself to go there, not to an extreme where you're really endangering yourself, but pushing your edge, you know, then sure, you're safe, but you're gray. Mm. And that's, that's not what life is about. No, safe and gray. No, that doesn't sound very exciting, does it? No. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah that's, that's beautiful. And I think, yeah, for me, my checks and balances when I'm on the road for a few days at a time, come from really making sure that I have non-negotiable FaceTime with my family, non-negotiable little emails or sending someone a little picture or, you know, like little moments of, of personal, intensely personal time that, that make me feel like I'm grounded in that way. And then um, as we very, uh, as we started at the very first part of the conversation, find nature and then yeah. I find, yeah, I'm, I'm all good. Yeah, I mean that's a huge thing for me. I, I live in Manhattan, but the reason I live where I live is because two blocks one way is the Hudson River, which is a 
it's not a little river. It's a yeah, pretty it's large huge. body of water. Mm-hmm. And three three blocks the other way is Central Park, which Beautiful. is you know effectively a small forest. Mm. So I'm in there on a regular basis, and I adjust my workflow to be in there on a regular basis too. Yeah, it's I mean, it's such an incredible park. Uh, I took my son there last month for the first time, mm-hmm. and uh, just as we were walking into Strawberry, like the little part where there's Strawberry Fields, which is my yeah. little pilgrimage kind of space, right. uh, as a Beatles fan, um, I, uh, I I I was sort of talking to him about this place that we were going to see because we I had just disappointed the heck out of him from missing the magic show that was on around the corner from the Natural History Museum. Um, and I was like, it's, it's okay, you know, we'll find something in London. We were going to London next. And, and by the way, we're just about to visit this really exciting place. And then boom, as only Central Park and New York City can do, a magician comes out of nowhere <laughs> and invites Sebastian to be a kid on his TV show that he's filming just next to Strawberry Fields and we're in within like 30 seconds I'm signing release forms, meeting the producer and Seb's having this private magic show from one of the best musician, magicians in the world for a TV show and I was just like, oh my gosh, Central Park, I love you. Magic always happens <laughs> there. It is crazy. Indeed. Um, yeah, so good. Anyway, I had to segue a, a tangent there because such a good story. Um, now... I, I'm going to finish by asking you because we've kind of talked about these motivators and you've you've mentioned that you're a, a type of person a couple of times through our show so far and you have a spark type quiz and I've taken this quiz and it got me to an absolute T uh, and, uh, and my results, should I share my results or should we talk sure, about what the spark type quiz is first? Um, Let's do so that why don't first. I, uh, yeah, so... Yeah, this has been um, one of the huge fascinations for me is when it comes to work, um, is there a universal set of drivers for people, no matter where you are, no matter what culture you come from, that um, are the most likely to lead you to feel like the work that you're doing in the world is um, an outgrowth. It's an expression of the your essential nature who you are you know what you're here to do that you it it fills you with meaning with purpose allows you to be seen heard um and so i I, i've always i've explored this for years trying to get at it and i've explored it through the lens of purpose of meaning of engagement of connection of flow and examined all the research around it and also seen so many prompts and and questions and I've never been satisfied and um, I never saw a universal process or an assessment or tool that let people understand what these drivers might be for them. You know, think of it as your life's work source code or DNA. Mm. Um, but what I started to realize was that as I was speaking on a lot of these ideas last year in front of a bunch of audiences and I kept asking different questions and offering different prompts and I start to realize that most people, if you ask them some kind of question like, what are you here to do? Or what is your purpose? They come up with a very specific answer, something like, well, I help um, I help uh, small animals who've been left on the street find homes. And I'm like, well, that's fantastic. And what's driving that? Hmm. And if you keep asking, and what's driving that? What's driving that? What's driving that? What happens is pretty quickly you go from something like, you know, 7 billion unique 
uh, purposes for each person in the world down to 10 universal imprints that are the, the fundamental, the core drivers of work for everybody in the world. So then once I started to realize that, um, and I, I didn't want it to come down to 10, it wasn't my intention or plan, it was just the more work I did distilling, it just kept folding into that number. And then I started to ask myself, well, can I build a tool that would ask a series of questions that would allow somebody to understand what this thing is for them um, in a relatively short period of time and then use that to help guide their behavior and the decisions they make about what they say yes or no to in the work that they do in the world. So I've actually spent um, pretty much, I've been out of the public eye to a large extent for the entirety of 2018, part of 2017, developing this body of work and developing the tool. And mm. so the, the imprints, as you mentioned, we call sparkotypes. And it's sort of my sh fun shorthand for the, uh, the archetype that sparks you at work. And the tool we built is, a, is an assessment that actually um, is not a fixed length. <laughs> it, uh, mm. it changes slightly um, in a dynamic way based on how people are completing it. So it's kind of interesting as some people will be like, hey, how'd you feel about that 51st question? And somebody else is like, uh, what 51st question? <laughs> so, but um, we introduced that. And um the response has been kind of mind-blowing mm. uh, to be honest with when you when did it's it launch october 23rd so we were in mm -hmm. beta for the better half of this year testing wow. and refining the algorithm and we launched it publicly in a very very quiet way on october 23rd and um we started to make it more public and sort of spread the word literally just uh you know not too long ago when we're taping this and yeah i mean the i i i thought we had stumbled on something interesting. Um, people in the beta group were kind of saying, this is not like anything I've ever done before. No, same. And, and I've done so many personality yeah, I think we kind all of have, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And, and it's very specific. You know, it's not a general personality type thing. It is very specific to the work that you do in the world. And it, it only answers one question, which is, like, what is, the, what is the source code? What is your driver mm. for that work that will make you feel like you're doing the thing you're here to do? Mm. And something I found really interesting as the uh, questions roll on is it's almost like very similar questions then keep getting asked. It, it feels like there's this sense of clarification happening throughout the, the, the questions that unfold where you kind of think, oh, I've been asked this already. Oh, no, but actually that word has changed or something. Really teeny tiny nuances. Is that because you kind of get a clue of something in the first wave of questions so you then reframe a few and, and try to help little, literally whittle down to one of these ten? Is that yeah, what's I mean, happening? That's, yeah. That's part of it. Um, you know, the algorithm is a little more involved. But, I'm sure um, it is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you know, what, you know what we found is that there are, you know, um, somebody will resonate with uh, something that's framed or said one way in a way that somebody else just completely won't. So the language that you use and the way you construct the questions is just super important in order to, and the number of times you would sort of ask questions differently um, is really important to get somebody to a place where like, oh, wow, yeah, this is actually really accurate and really useful for me. And in fact, some of the dynamic prompts at the very end, if they, if they become triggered by the assessment, um, will force you to choose if you don't want to. You know, they will force you to assign 
um, preferences um, because what we, what we find is sometimes people just don't want to really, really discern mm. how they feel. Mm-hmm. Um, and my approach is if you're going to invest yourself in completing an assessment like this, you know, it's going to take you probably about 10 minutes to do. It's not a fast and easy five-question marketing quiz. It's actually um, something more involved. If you're going to do that, um, let's actually get you to do it from a place where you're really being as honest and thoughtful as you can so that the result that you get from it is as valid and useful as it can be. Mm, that's so key. And then the very last thing that I got asked, I took a screen grab of it because I was so flipping mm. impressed with it in terms of what it then would mean uh, in the final answer. Can I share what those two things are? Is it going to be different for everyone, right? Um, sure. Yeah. Okay. So which statement is most accurate for you? Number one, I teach share wisdom so that I can better solve problems and answer burning questions. Or number two, I solve problems and answer burning questions so that I can better teach and share wisdom. And, uh, and my guys out there know me really well. I definitely ticked number two. I love trying to figure it all out, nerd out massively, and then pop out the end and help everybody make, um, make it, uh, make light of it. Um, more than the the first way around. And I just thought that was an amazing final question. And I would encourage anyone to do this. You could be on the PTA committee. You could be uh, a a stay-at-home parent. Anyone will get value from this because really what I felt like it did was it made you understand what lights you up as a person. So that's not necessarily work by the definition of what we tend to buy and large C work to mean. It could just literally mean what you do and what you choose to say yes to in life. And, you know, I thought it was a great, great uh, identifier. Really, really impressive. So thank you for putting it out. Um, oh, thanks. I'm so, so glad it was helpful for you. Yeah, it really was. So my result was, so you get a primary spark type and then you get a shadow spark type. Can you just talk through what the difference between those two things is? Yep. So... The primary is think of that as the source code for the work that you feel like you're you're really here to do. You're you're probably competent at it. You wake up in the morning, you would do it for free if you could. Um, the shadow is the work that you're very likely you've de- very likely developed some competence in, some skills. You enjoy doing it. You're happy to spend time doing it. But if you're really being honest. You almost always do it in service of being able to do the work of your primary better. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a hard distinction for a lot of people to make, but it's a really important one, especially if you're trying to understand what's working or not working in a current job or if you're trying to evaluate new opportunities as they come. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cool. So I got Sage as my primary spark type. Um, mm-hmm. And scientist as my shadow type, and yeah, uh, which is which is a pretty um, it's it's a a pretty there it's, I am. It's a com it's yeah, it's a common parent. <laughs> uh, is it you know? interesting? Yeah, because what it says is you know you you love researching, you love complex problem solving, you love you know going in there and figuring out the puzzle. You'll massively geek out on it, but at the end of the day, as much as you love that, you're you know like there's a a huge amount of your effort that you put into that is because 
you need to do it in, in order to turn around and teach what you've learned to other people so that you can make a difference to them. Yeah. And and so you do all the work of the scientist in the name of being able to actually be better at doing the work of the sage. Yeah. That's I mean it, it like it is completely me. Every career I've ever had and I'm on my fourth industry now. Um, and I'm here to stay by the way, guys. Uh, and it, it, like, you can just literally pick those two things out of every job I've ever done. Every time I've ever been motivated to work, it's always because those two things are at play in a major way. So yeah, I encourage everybody to jump on. I've put the link in the show notes so that you guys can all do it. Um, and, uh, if you're a member of the low tox club, we will absolutely be, bearing all and sharing what we got and uh and uh, and comparing notes um jonathan what an amazing chat i have this whole other section of things that i wanted to ask you about but we've been going a while now mm. so i think we're gonna have to do part two 2019 <laughs> sounds good maybe we'll do that one in sydney right yeah absolutely absolutely nothing like a home-cooked meal on the road so come visit Sounds great. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. I really enjoyed the conversation. Me too. Me too. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to today's show. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoy having these conversations and bringing them to you. Now, where can you find me and Lotox Life from here on in? Well, you've obviously got lotoxlife.com and there we have everything beautifully organized into food, home, body and mind topics as well as kids and a whole bunch of free downloadables and resources to help you inspire you to take community action and there's amazing a to z recipes there if you're ever getting a little bit stale in the kitchen and a whole bunch of articles that i've written you can also find me on instagram at lotox life and also on facebook by a page the same name i make everything super easy lotox life so you can find it really really simply Thank you so much to everybody who leaves a five-star review over on Stitcher or iTunes or wherever it is that you tune into the show. And also to let you know that you can join us on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Lotox Life and come join the private Lotox Life Club. In there, over time, more and more cool stuff is about to be added. It's a place where we can continue the conversations, chat about the weekly show, you're going to get bonus Q&A and all sorts of things over time. I explain everything over on Patreon, so I encourage you to check that out. And in the meantime, I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.